As I was thinking about what I might possibly talk about in this monologue, I started thinking about what is it about the energy industry and public power in particular that motivates me and keeps me engaged. It's certainly not an industry that makes for easy dinner party conversation. When I say I work for a consulting company on a team that works on power supply matters, primarily for public power utilities, the conversation usually stops there. But what our industry lacks in its ability to charm acquaintances, I believe it strongly makes up for in one key area where it truly shines, and that is the people. I think we have some of the brightest, most dedicated, and passionate people that are truly motivated to solve difficult problems in an industry, although sometimes arcane, is nothing less than absolutely essential to society. To put this in context, recently I was on a conference call where I heard, I know Thanksgiving is a thing, but this is really our opportunity to get some important work done on this issue. Case in point, these are some very dedicated people. And what I've come to realize is that for me, it's the people and the challenge of how we work together to solve important issues and create opportunities that really inspires me. I think there's a lot of agreement on some of the big challenges facing our industry today. Absolutely essential issues like how do we achieve carbon reduction goals while also maintaining the reliability of the grid? And how do we do this in a cost-effective way? We have a lot of practice in collaborating together in the region, the public generating pool. So this is a little shout out to my past employer wrote a report that details the many dedicated efforts over the past couple decades to coordinate together in the region on market efforts. And what that report highlights is that while we've made some incremental steps to shared market functions, the Western EAM was stood up in 2014 after all. These successes have been limited overall though and are not directly a result of a coordinated effort. So where does that leave us? I think our ability to succeed in the energy transition doesn't lie in our ability to solve difficult policy questions or technical solutions. I have all the confidence that we collectively have the talent to solve these problems. I think what it comes down to is that once more simple and inherently more difficult, and that is people. How do we work together to solve these difficult issues and achieve success where we have shared goals? Especially now where the stakes are really high and issues like the reliability of our grid are front and center. I wonder, could we achieve more success in devising solutions to shared challenges if we changed our decision-making framework? What might shift if instead of asking ourselves, is this program policy proposal in the best interest of my utility? If we asked, is this program policy and proposal in the best interest of my utility and other utilities and other stakeholders and the region as a whole? If instead of forming coalitions primarily with like-minded entities, what if we challenged ourselves to seek out unlikely partnerships with folks with very different priorities than our own? And what if instead of seeking to make our own voices heard above all others, we actively looked for opportunities to amplify voices that might not otherwise be heard? If we were to shift our thinking from the I to the collective we, might we be more likely to make decisions that set us up as a public power community and region for more success? I'll end with just a little sh a short story. In my household, Friday night is family movie night, TV night. It's our favorite way to ease into the weekend after the long school and work week. Recently, we were watching a National Geographic episode where the theme was unlikely partnerships between animals. The program was set in the Canadian forest where the sharp-shinned hawk is a fearsome predator to many small birds and squirrels and other creatures. And so the chickadee devised a specific song that sounds the alert when the hawk is on the move. But the cool thing is the chickadees alert song isn't only for other chickadees. It serves as an alert for squirrels and mice too. 
And while far from a songbird, the squirrel has even learned how to replicate the song. And having done so, it also alerts the chickadees and other small forest creatures when it spots the hawk. Working together, these unlikely partnerships have allowed these small forest creatures to enhance their ability to survive the fearsome predators like the sharp-shinned hawk. With the example of the chickadee and squirrel in mind, I challenge us, what unlikely partnerships might we develop and could these be the key to unlocking solutions to key challenges facing our industry today? We started in hard times to bring us all in Into the laughter through thick and through thin For public power enthusiasts without and within Roll on enthusiasts, roll on Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. We're like Thanks for pushing play on Public Power Underground. I'm Paul Dockery. I'm Almaz Nagesh. I'm Dan Catchpole. Joining as this week's celebrity guest star is Leah Fisher. Leah is a senior project manager for GDS Associates, frequently representing the Western Power Agency Group, or WAPEG. She is a staple in policy discussions in the Northwest and an expert on CAISO and Markets Plus governance discussions. Prior to joining with WAPEG for GDS Associates, we'll talk about it. Leah was a senior policy analyst for PGP and a senior power analyst for at Seattle City Light. Leah Fisher, welcome to the fifth season of Public Power Underground. Thanks, Paul. I'm really happy to be here. And and can you you kind of talked a little bit about it in the open, but uh, GDS Associates WAPEG. It's uh, I you always introduce yourself a GDS Associates on behalf of WAPEG or something. What's the story there? <laughs> yeah, I probably can drop that one, but yeah. So GDS Associates works on behalf of WAPEG. So. We partner with them on a number of different um, streams of work. So I'm helping with Bonneville wrap uh, decisions and then also post-2028 work. We have some other folks at GDS that are working on Bonneville rate case matters. So yeah, WAPEG is a great partnership um, that we have here in the Northwest. And it's been really fun to kind of keep up those public power relationships and keep working on this interesting work in our region. Yep. Well, I'm, I'm glad you're still helping out public power, even uh, for GDS Associates. Um, yeah. the, uh, other other news, Almaz Nagesh has agreed to be a co-host, a regular contributor to Public Power. Thank you, Almaz. I have. I'm, I'm happy to, to do it. Yeah. Are you excited, Dan? It's going to be fun. I'm very excited. Almaz is, yeah, I'm very excited. You are a major contribution to this. Yeah. Um, First round so, draft choice. Like, I, it's like yeah. we got our, yeah, we, a great recruiting. I don't know. Free agent signing. It's something in there. Free agent signing. I did a great free agent signing. <laughs> no, this is, this is going to be great. It was perfect. Okay. Time. Yep. Perfect timing. Do you want to talk about, you're on sabbatical from Tacoma I, Power. I am on sabbatical. Yes. For the next year. Um, looking at like, like I said, Leah, I love your open because that's kind of the focus of what I'm going to be uh, looking at during my sabbatical is how we can. Um, Worlds and chickadees. Look at, well, so not the chickadee, <laughs> more the public good, um, making decisions um, for the greater good um, instead of being uh, individualistic um, for something as important as electricity. 
Yep. And we're going to get into it more on today's episode. So on today's episode of Public Power Underground, we're approaching some electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a market expert's angle. We'll talk about wrap participation, the tension and trade-offs on an incremental approach to market evolution in the West, and NERC's winter reliability assessment. Then we're short-circuiting our way through the rest of the topics. Uh, we didn't get to in a segment we call Short to Ground. And lastly, I'll close out the episode with some personal news. That's foreshadowing. <laughs> foreshadowing before we get started a quick word from our presenting sponsor the presenting sponsor of public power underground is the energy authority the energy authority is a nonprofit company that specializes in portfolio management and prides itself on leading communities through today's energy transformation owned by public power entities tea is more than just adjacent they're as underground as it gets TA is on a mission to help clients maximize the value of their assets while meeting their power supply goals. By providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, advisory, and renewable solutions, TA equips public power utilities with access to state-of-the-art resources and technology systems so they can respond competitively in the changing energy markets. With over 60 other public power utilities proudly partnering with TEA to tackle their energy future, it's time for you to consider breaking ground too. Let TEA help you navigate the uncertain future of our industry by visiting teainc.org to learn more. That's teainc.org to learn more today. Okay, our first segment is Public Power Desktop, where we close out some browser tabs of energy and energy adjacent news. You've got the first story, Elmaz, take it away. All right. On October 19th, the Bonneville Power Administration released a draft closeout letter on its proposed decision to participate in the binding phase of the Western Power Pool's Western Resource Adequacy Program with an expectation that it'll release its final decision in December. It hosted a workshop on November 1st to discuss the proposal and garner input on the first binding period during the transition. And staff is leaning towards electing a later season between summer 2027 and summer 2028, uh, first mandatory binding season after the transition period. The program, the program filed its tariff with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission on August 31st and subsequently received a letter from the Market Regulator Office uh, asking for more information about how the RAP's real-time component will work with FERC's market-based rate authority mechanism, which federal regulators use to prevent market manipulations. Okay, that was on November 21st. The letter gives Western Power Pool 30 days to address the issues. Um, the Western Power Pool is asking participants to decide on participation by, de by December 16th, and for more Coverage on the letter from FERC, you can read Dan Catchpole's coverage and clearing up. Now, this is the I, I, the question that I have for you, Leah, based on this. So Bonneville's about to do this stakeholder uh, process. Um, and I, too, have a little bit of a story. So I, I have a hard time getting to a question before a background story. So about a month ago, uh, so I was at our board meeting, um, staff were presenting Tacoma Powers case to, to our board for joining the RAP. Um, and, you know, 
no, the, the average person doesn't attend these things. But in this particular case, we had somebody from the, 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 the public, the general public, who attended the meeting, who stood up and said, you know, what? I don't think we should be doing this. Uh, Tacoma Power is fine. This is just going to add costs to us. We don't need it. Uh, I think, you know, based off of what we, we've, you know, I've been, you know, following the IRP and other things, I think we're going to be okay. This is just going to add costs. We don't need to do that. Um, and I'm just curious. So like as Bonneville is going into this, this stakeholder process, and for in general, you know, any stakeholder process, when there'll, there'll be people who have a, a zero sum mindset and, and are only considering what's the best, what's in my personal best interest, like how do decision makers convince those differently positioned uh, stakeholders that the public good, what's doing good for everyone is actually in the best interest of the individual stakeholders as well. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think that that's a great example that really gets to the heart. I think of you know, some of the questions many of, our, many of us are asking ourselves as Bonneville is faced with this decision about joining binding wrap and which season to select. And, you know, I think I think sometimes it's easy to forget, you know, back in, I guess, the 2018, 2019 timeframe when this program got going. I mean, the whole idea behind it was that we all came together to recognize based on a lot of study work that had been done that we know our, our region is likely to experience capacity shortfalls in the near future. And so um, there was a recognition that there was a need to coordinate together. And so the idea of coming up with this common planning metric and the RA program and really this idea of neighbors helping neighbors, um, you know, we all kind of came together at that point in time and realized that we will probably be better off all together as a result um, through a program like this, because again, you know, sort of the old adage that no balancing authority operates as an island. So, you know, even if me personally, utility A does not see capacity shortfalls in the future, perhaps I have a lot of capacity, I'm good to go, but I will be impacted if others are impacted negatively as a result of not having enough capacity. So I think it's through that sort of lens that, we can't forget that not only do we need to make decisions based on you know what is in the interest of our individual utility or for example Bonneville what's in the interest of Bonneville and its customers but i think you know the stakes are are high here and we also need to be thinking about what does it mean for the region when we make these decisions and again because we don't operate you know just in our own utility world we are all impacted by the decisions that each of us make so i think it's really important to keep that in mind. And I think, you know, Bonneville is in kind of a, a tough spot, right? Because they get a lot of information from a lot of stakeholders, you know, kind of across the gamut. You've got some that are more kind of, we've, we see some concerns here and we want you to be conservative and we want you to think about maybe sort of a later binding participation stage. And I think there are others that are saying, well, Bonneville, we're looking at you for when you decide to join and we're going to have to kind of follow closely along with, with your timing because what Bonneville does affects the program as a whole. If Bonneville is non-binding, you know, that's obviously going to impact that planning reserve margin, that metric that's established by the program. And it's probably going to make that planning reserve margin higher, which just means it might be harder for other utilities that may want to participate in the binding program sooner to do that without Bonneville. So Bonneville really has, I think, a role to play here in being a leader. I think it's you know really important to make sure the program makes sense for Bonneville and its customers from a business standpoint and making sure that, you know, it, it's going to be in line with Bonneville's statutes and status. Um, but I think it's also important for Bonneville to be considering in its decision-making how this impacts other utilities and how it impacts the region. I think we can't lose sight of that. 
I love it. How much, how, how much could Bonneville being in or out of it shift the planning reserve margin for other utilities in the region? I know that's so many variables in that, but just I'm curious, like what's ballpark range? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I haven't seen that quantified, Dan. I'm imagining um, that that probably could be. Uh, there probably are some numbers that could be put around that. Um, but but I think you know just recognizing that Bonneville, of course, has kind of comparatively compared to all the other participants, their load and resources. Um, they're kind of the 800 pound gorilla. So hard to know exactly what that impact would be on the planning reserve margin. Um, but I think Can- yeah. Can you explain just the directional why, why Bonneville not participating in it could increase the planning reserve margin just directionally, conceptually? Yeah, yeah. So when, when you think about the planning reserve margin, right, so that's that's what we have to plan to as part of this program's metric. And the more participants you have in the program, more likely you're going to have a lower planning reserve margin, right? Because we're all coming together with our resources and our ability to share in those resources, all of those kind of diversity benefits, you're going to be able to maximize those more. And so you can have a lower planning reserve margin. But if you start, you know, pulling out participants from the program and you have less load and resources, there's going to be a need then to kind of incrementally make that planning reserve margin higher. So, So you kind of have less to spread around as far as that planning reserve margin goes. So, yeah, that's kind of directionally, I think, what we're thinking about when you start thinking about the footprint and what happens if folks start pulling out. And, you know, the, the question binding versus non-binding, um, you know, just because you're a non-binding participant, it doesn't mean that you're you've pulled out of the program entirely, but but the power pool has, you know, made the kind of the statement that in the program design that particular utility as a non-binding utility would no longer be in the modeling of the planning reserve margin. So we do know that, and we do know that would, at least um, for the time being, when a participant's non-binding, they would be, that would be an impact. Yep. Uh, I did want to give Dan a little bit of a space to talk a little bit about your coverage uh, around the deficiency letter from FERC uh, to the Western Resource Adequacy Program or about their tariff filing. I, I, I noticed in your coverage, you got some comments from uh, the the pool. Any any additional coverage there or, or insights you got from covering that letter that you think uh, would be interesting to share, Dan? Well, actually, I I'd love to uh, not to deflect, but P- please, deflect. I'm going Fine. to. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so I'd actually like to throw this question. It's a question I've got for you folks. I know, yeah, you guys are all coming from this uh, the power market side from public power, so might just be, you know, that you guys don't really know given your experience, but I, yeah, the, so this idea of uh, the, what is it, the market-based rates authority. So just, uh, yeah, for folks who aren't um, familiar with it. So that's one way that FERC uses to prevent a market entity uh, from using its size if it has if it's big enough to manipulate market prices. Uh, so it once it's mitigated for that or if they determine that the entity is not big enough to uh, it, you know it's not wheeling and dealing in wholesale energy capacity or ancillary services uh, to it, manipulate market prices or it's mitigated against the risk of that. They say you can sell, you know, that entity can sell at market-based rates versus cost of service rates. So uh, the Western Power Pool officials are pretty 
confident that this is kind of standard questions asking for more FERC asking for more information about how the wrap, which as they've stressed, not a market, uh, but it does facilitate sharing energy between participants uh, selling and buying energy between themselves. So FERC wants more information about how this won't interact or how it will interact with FERC, uh, you know, preventing market manipulation and just uh, creating a, a situation where the size of the participants within RAP could you know, uh, inadvertently or as worst case, cynically, advertently, <laughs> intentionally, uh, yeah, manipulate markets. So, yeah, you know, the Western Power Pool officials are pretty confident. This is a standard question. It, you know, it'll take time to answer, but that it's not going to be a serious uh, you know, stumbling block to getting FERC approval for the wrap. What do you guys think? Is there potential? You know, the uh, is this a serious potentially or potentially serious conflict between these two mechanisms that could require some you know, worst case scenario for? The Western Power Pool could require some tinkering with the design. Yeah, um, great question. You know, I was looking at this one, and I have to admit, I mean, I, I feel like it came at least for me as a little bit of a surprise. I don't think any stakeholders had submitted comments in the docket on this particular issue, yeah. so it feels a little bit hard to kind of get a handle on um, the, the question itself that they're raising with market-based rate authority and what it might mean for the program. I mean, I think, you know, in the RAP tariff filing, they, they pretty clearly state that entities would need to have market-based rate authority to engage in sort of the bilateral settlement piece of the operational program. Um, so then, you know, the question that FERC's raising, well, how would this program work for entities that don't have market-based rate authority? Seems like a fair question. I, I don't have the answer there. I think maybe the first question is within the program um, and, and potential participants, you know, who does and who doesn't have that market-based rate authority? Is it is it even a problem um, within kind of the, the footprint of the program today? My guess is probably it is, right? It's not, um, it's not just a an issue that we're seeking to find a solution for when there's no one that is in that position. So my guess is that this could impact um, an entity or maybe more than one entity. And so I think that the question that they're raising is a fair one. Um, I think, you know, for for the power pool, um, I'm sure they will have an answer. They, I think the challenge is, right, they just have this 30-day period and this, um, you know, letter that I think is just a couple pages. So I can imagine it might be a little bit challenging to sort of figure out how to get the FERC staff the clarification they need. It's not like they can, right, just give them a call up and, and say, hey, we just want to make sure we're, we're getting this right or understanding you right. They've got ex parte rules and all that. So I think they're probably kind of faced with a little bit of a bring me a new rock type challenge um, here. Uh, but I, I'm sure that they've got, you know, I think they said, we're not surprised that we got some questions. So I'm sure they have their ducks in a row to, to give them some good answers there. But I have to admit that does seem um, with the 30 day period, you know, a bit of a tough place that they're in to, to try to fully understand the questions being raised and provide a full response. But I've got confidence in them. I'm glad you have confidence. I have been impressed by the power pools uh, relations with FERC and, and, you know, the way their attorneys have been able to navigate some of these issues. So um, I think one of the interesting things to me is they're still asking for participation by December 16th. And of course, that is all driven by funding for the power pool or for the wrap program within the power pool. So 
a um, lot of uh, entities making it through their own regulatory steps to be able to participate, uh, including the Bonneville Power Administration, who we expect uh, circling back to their process for closeout. Leah, any um, any tea leaves on uh, how how many days before the 16th do you expect Bonneville to announce its uh, decision? You know, I don't know. I know you know stakeholders have have put out. Um, you know, a lot of comments and letters. And I think, you know, even kind of putting some parameters on specific issues um, that some folks have raised around how preference um, can be ensured within the program. And I think there were, you know, requests, Bonneville, we'd like you to to provide some clarification on this issue by December 5th. So I have to imagine um, timing wise, you know, it's going to be a real challenge to, to work through some of these issues. But, you know, on on that preference issue, if we go there just for a minute, just to, to be clear Please. about what we're, yeah, just to be clear about what we're yeah. talking about there. So um, a lot of stakeholders have said, we really want to make sure that there isn't a scenario, particularly in the operations program, where, you know, there might potentially be an issue where a preference customer doesn't have access to Bonneville's preference power in the operational program. And the way this has been teed up is, I think even in all of the comments submitted, it's sort of, you know, an edge case. So not something that's likely to actually um, occur very often, but, you know, preference is a hugely important issue, so it can't be ignored. So I think on that one, um, I think, you know, Bonneville has committed to, to, you know, ensuring that preference is respected in the program. WPPP has also been really clear this program can't go forward, obviously, for Bonneville without making sure preference is respected. So I feel confident that there will be a solution that can be devised there. Um, I think it's just a matter of, you know, the timing is is pretty tight. So there may need to be some flexibility on, you know, kind of hard dates. Um, but, you know, I think this is for sure something that's um, hugely important to public power. And I think Bonneville and WPP know that, and there's a plan in place to make sure it's addressed and respected. And I think it's just, you know, I, I don't, I think we need to just be a little careful that we don't lose sight of the, the forest for the trees, right? You know, this is preference, of course, is a hugely important issue. But when we think about, you know, how likely something is to happen, and sort of what are the potential um, impacts as a result of that likelihood, doesn't mean that it's not something we need to make sure is addressed, but I think just keeping in mind that this is a pretty edge case we're talking about and in the overall scheme of things um, probably isn't going to be a factor that ultimately should play into Bonneville joining. I think there's a plan in place there to address yeah, that. I, would, I, I think it's true it's an edge case and we need to make sure we're um, thinking of it as, as a rare probability event anyway, but there is some truth to this may be precedential in the way that Bonneville statutory obligations are viewed in a in a program like this. So I think it's really helpful. Right. I'm glad that we're working through it with right. uh, with entities that may not have the same interests as us. And, you know, it's <laughs> like a chickadee like, calling to the squirrels. <laughs> that right? Did I get that right? Um, and yeah. I, I think it's a uh, a really important topic. And I, it's my understanding the power pool has provided some comments on Bonneville's stakeholder process that uh, they view as response to this concern. So Dan, if you're looking for some fodder for your next article about the wrap, uh, you can go to Bonneville's comments and you may be able to find some, in, uh, some new developments uh, around preference. Oh, I plan to. There you go. That was good. Uh, good. I think we're ready for the next topic. You ready to take it away, Dan? Yeah, I am. Thank you. 
So uh, the Southwest Power Pool hosted a two-day in-person Markets Plus development session on November 15th and 16th. RTO Insider covered the event in a November 20th article written by Tom Kleckner, friend of the underground Garrison Marr, and was uh, was quoted in the piece discussing the value proposition of a centrally dispatched organized market to the uh, versus the bilateral uh, I'm sorry to the bilateral framework utilized in the non-CISO West today. Steve Wright opened the event with comments as the new director on SPP's board, highlighting the governance model of SPP and the organization's collaborative approach to policy development. The two-day event ended with a program implementation cost estimate. SPP officials have assumed that by phase two, when the day ahead market is designed, Markets Plus will be about a 50 gigawatt system with up to 30 balancing authorities and 90 market participants involved. The phase is estimated to take about three years and cost about $130 million. Staff said that they will look for ways to minimize costs for entities who choose to transition from Markets Plus to SPP's RTO West, which they plan to stand up in the next couple of years. So, uh, Leah, I'm curious if there's anything we can read from the in, in the tea leaves uh, in that uh, SPP staff saying that they're looking to minimize costs for entities who choose to transition from Markets Plus, which is day ahead in real time, uh, to the full blown RTO West that they're standing, they hope to stand up, expect to stand up in the next few years by 2025. Is this? Do you think? Am I? Would I be reading too much into this to say like, oh, they're trying, they really want to push people to expand our, uh, to move to the RTO West to create a bigger market there? Or, you know, is it just uh, no, way no, to yeah. say? I think that, I think that's, that's totally um, a fair take on it. I mean, I think obviously, you know, the end game, if you're putting yourself in SPP issues is, is not markets plus, right? The end game is hopefully having a lot more folks join the RTO. So I think, you know, thinking through how do you kind of make, make the pitch for markets plus for those that do want the incremental approach to markets that are more comfortable with starting with the day ahead market service offering like markets plus, how do you make the pitch to them knowing that, you know, they're going to have real costs associated with markets plus. And then if you're going to join the RTO later, so it's sort of that question of, does it make sense for me to join markets plus knowing all the costs that are there, if I'm going to join the RTO later. So I think kind of how do you how do you make the sell to the entity that's more comfortable with that incremental approach, knowing that there are real costs for both of these efforts? And you know, I think that that one hundred and thirty million dollar price tag. Um, I'd be I wasn't in the room. I wasn't able to join that meeting, but it would have been kind of interesting to hear what reactions that garnered. Um, you know, we don't have sort of a good comparison, I guess, you know, for another day ahead market option. I don't think EDAM has put out any sort of costs like that yet as a comparison. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that folks have pointed to is the price tag for the RTO West effort. So um, there's some slides on SVP's website, sort of their stakeholder process around RTO West, where they've quoted a figure that's much lower um, than, that, than that 130 million for Markets Plus. I think it's about you know 32 million dollars for the RTO West effort. So I think you know it at first blush when you kind of see a price tag of about 130 million dollars for Markets Plus and then 32 million dollars for for this RTO West effort. I think that can you know raise some eyebrows or at least 
lead to some head scratching. But but I think there's probably some good reasons for that. Um, you know, I know Markets Plus is obviously, Dan, you quoted kind of what they're targeting there as far as um, total participants in the 50 gigawatt system and I think 30 balancing authority areas. So that's that's a very sizable effort. And I know RTO West to start is, is assuming a much smaller amount of total load and participants. So I think they're starting with the seven. So I think kind of as far as scale goes, that might be one reason why the costs for RTO West look a lot smaller compared to Markets Plus. Um, and then also, you know, RTO West is just an expansion of SPP's existing RTO. So it's not it's not a whole cloth effort to stand up a new RTO. Whereas Markets Plus, of course, you know, kind of the tagline for it from the start has been we're developing something for the by the West for the West. So we're trying to create a totally new governance structure, a completely new market design. There's no sort of just kind of expanding what's already been created for the SPP RTO. So that's just a couple of thoughts on, you know, if you're kind of doing that cost comparison, um, what might be driving some of the differences there. So as you Can mentioned... I Go ahead, Dan. I was, yeah, I just wanted to ask a follow-up question and I'll you know, just a kind of yes or no thing. Can, so you helped stand up, or you were involved with Seattle City Lights uh, entry into the CAISO's energy imbalance market. And you know these doing that cost, I forget how much, but it costs several million dollars, which, you know, uh, these are huge entities, but it's not insignificant. Did that sunk cost already into the Western EIM, do you think that'll factor that much in potentially into any organization's decision to join Markets Plus versus CAISO's competing proposal for a day ahead market? Yeah, I think it would have you know, to be pretty marginal, but I'd... that's that's kind of how I've heard it spoke to as well. Um, I don't have a good sense of, you know, how a Seattle or others that are in the EIM are thinking about those sunk costs. I think it's a factor, but I think your kind of instinct that it's probably marginal is the case. I have not heard anyone say that would be, um, you know, a really big factor in a decision there. Um, I think it's a good question to be asking and there might be, you know, differences on a utility by utility basis. Um, but I think, you know, one thing I have heard is that, you know, all of the upgrades and systems that were required to participate in, in an EIM. I think there have been folks that have said, you know, some of these we can obviously utilize, you know, it wouldn't, we wouldn't, it wouldn't all be a sunk cost. You could, there could be some transfer of those capabilities for any other market you might think about joining. So I think there's, there's a little bit of that there. Um, but I'm, but I'm certainly not, I can't speak to it in any sort of expertise, um, not being in, in one of those utilities today, but I think it's a fair question to be asking and probably, um, certainly is something that, um, other utilities are thinking about. Yeah. Specifically, like some of the metering upgrades that Bonneville had to perform right. projects that they had to do in order to participate in the IM would have to, they'd have to do regardless of the, um, centrally dispatched market they're participating in. And so I suspect some of the settlements, uh, infrastructure are, are the same too. Like you've got people now doing these settlements within uh, an organized market. And some of those are just translatable. You had to invest in it, but now that you've invested in some of that infrastructure, it's transferable. Um, yes. I, I have another question, but Almaz, did you have any questions around this topic you wanted to get into? You know, it's not a fair question. Um, yeah, ask but it anyway. Throw it out there anyway. I can remember, it must have been about six, five or six years ago. Um, 
somebody at Tacoma made a prediction that SP, it was more likely that SPP would reach out into the West before Kaiso came up, uh, you know, before Kaiso expanded uh, uh, outside of California, beyond obviously the EIM. Um, I'm just curious, like, so this was before any markets plus SP, this was just somebody throwing a prediction out there. Um, moving forward, like, which one do you think is going to prevail? Ooh, I that's, that's yeah. not a fair question, and maybe you might get people in trouble. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I if I was smart, I'd probably say I'm not going to do the crystal ball thing, right? But but and I probably Why not? Won't. nobody listens. It's like, fine. Yeah, I mean, who who really knows? But I think I, my mind always goes to governance, just because that's where I've spent some time on markets issues in the past couple of years, and I think. I think governance is really essential and important to the way folks in the Northwest are thinking about sort of which market to, you know, hitch their wagon to. I think it's 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 not a challenge that is insurmountable. So when we think about kind of the options today with Markets Plus or EDAM and how governance is situated, sure, SPP, of course, you know, most are going to think they have a leg up, right? They've got an independent board, they have a board that is not appointed by the state. So some of those concerns that we see with the governance for CAISO and thinking about kind of moving beyond the EIM, moving to EDAM, maybe something even beyond ETAM, maybe RTO, you know, I think that governance issue, until there can be legislative change that really allows that board to be not appointed by the California governor, I think until that happens, um, it's going to be really difficult for for Kaiso to prevail. I think it depends a little bit for at least for EDAM. It depends a little bit on the entity, right? So I think there are some entities who are, who would be just fine and probably will join um, EDAM with the governance in the situation it's in now. I think that picture changes when you think about something beyond a day ahead market. I think it becomes hard for 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 many more folks to think about. Um, you know, further market expansion without that governance change. So I think maybe to just kind of sum it up, I think it depends a bit on, you know, how you're thinking about the governance issue and each entity is going to have to assess that differently. I think we know for a lot of folks in the Northwest, it's really important that um, the governance for for any market is truly independent. Um, and so you can kind of make your predictions based on, you know, how likely it might be that, you know, California gets that legislative change or not. Um, and I think that that'll be probably a pretty big deciding factor going forward. And and speaking to that governance change and how comfortable entities would be at the day ahead market step or the be- next step beyond, we've got some evidence of that with Pacific Core. They were going to be a, they were trying to become a participating transmission owner, I think is the term of art. Um, but they decided at the time that without a, a change in governance that they would they couldn't take that step, which is probably the most analogous to a participation in an RTO. So um, we're trying, we're like through time, we're like figuring out where the line is for some of these organizations. And I think all of them have decided that EIM um, is, is on the side of the line that you can go and where EDAM falls is a good question. Um, I want to talk a little bit about like the, the incremental steps here um, because you know, as you as as you mentioned, um, the RTO West's implementation costs are lower because you're just basically copying an existing framework, um, and then taking like an incremental step to a, a just the day ahead market where you're trying to build one yourself. Um, 
has higher costs. Um, and that to me is like a cost of the evolutionary approach or incremental approach. What do you think about that, Leah? How are you thinking through um, whether it's just more feasible to go in an incremental approach so we have to bear the cost or, or what trade-offs are? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's there there are real challenges with an incremental approach. Um, I think, you know, as we've seen with both Markets Plus and EDAM, the questions around transmission and how you sort of respect all of these different oat rights um, and also, you know, try to have as much possible transmission in the program. You know, these questions that are really challenging for these incremental day ahead market options, I think a lot of those go away when you're thinking about moving to a full RTO. So I think there are challenges um, with the incremental approach, but that said, you know, I think it's, it's also very true that you have to be realistic about the fact that a lot of, a lot of folks are more comfortable or have, you know, expressed sort of a leaning towards a preference for an incremental approach. And there's valid reasons for that too. And so I think where we are today is that, you know, it feels like we're moving in the direction of the incremental approach um, for better, or for worse. I, I, I'm not taking an opinion there, but I think since we're moving that way, um, I think that then, you know, we're just going to have to try to, I think, think through what the transition looks like if we do go to full RTO eventually. Um, and so what does it mean when we're trying to establish a governance structure for Markets Plus and we're designing and putting money into all of these features that we really want to have included in this Markets Plus service offering, for example? You know, How do we make sure that those are maintained if we move to a full RTO? So if we're talking about you know, RTO West and that's just an extension of the current RTO, doesn't sound like to me that that would meet the needs of the folks that are developing Markets Plus. So I think kind of some of those questions about how do we make sure that the costs we invest are actually sort of brought forward into the future for whatever comes next, I think is important not to lose sight of. As you're going in with the incremental approach, it seems like some parties in this chickadee world, um, the squirrels have some interest in the centrally dispatched functions and get a lot of value out of that, but then may get less value if you fully consolidate BAs and transmission, whereas the entities that may benefit the most from transmission consolidation may not get the most bang for their buck out of the centrally dispatched. So in some ways, these are different um, different collaboration and and different like uh what's the right word i'm missing it here but uh, like your coalitions are different depending on what you're talking about it, it is there is there risk of if you take an incrementalist approach that the ultimate step a consolidated ba and rto and network transmission like could become less likely because some entities get the most bang for their buck out of the centrally dispatched so the next step is devalued any thoughts on that leah am i missing the mark there yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting question, and I hadn't hadn't thought about it that way. I don't know if I have any sort of good hot takes on on that, um, but I'd be curious if anyone else does because, yeah, you know, I think it's those kinds of questions that we should be thinking through, right? So it's it's kind of trying to be one step ahead. Um, so I think that's a great question. I just don't I don't know. 
Well, first, we should probably test my hypothesis on whether there are differently situ- <laughs> like if some entities within the West will val- will get greater value out of the centrally dispatched functions versus the transmission functions. And you know where I could go to further elaborate on that is PGP's market retrospective, which has a wonderful table in the appendices that goes yeah. through all these elements of an RTO and the elements of how they are disadvantaged or advantaged and, and the parties that are on what side of it. Leah, yeah. did you help with that? It was beautiful. Yes, yes, I did. Yes. So um, yeah, that is a great plug and a great reference tool to look to and lots of detail in there. So yeah. Okay. Well, we'll investigate that more in the future. Almaz, anything else or should we go to the next one? Let's let's move on. So I guess that would be me, right? (laughs) The uh, North American Electric Reliability Corporation, commonly referred to as NERC, released its 2022-2023 winter reliability assessment on November 17th. The assessment warns of risk of insufficient energy supplies during severe winter weather for a large portion of the North American bulk power system. An infographic provides a helpful visualization of the study results, which highlights in red the reserve margin under extreme conditions. The reserve margin for Texas was the lowest shown as a mind-boggling negative 21.4%. In summarizing the assessment, NERC's press release said high peak demand projects, inadequate generator weatherization, fuel supply risk, and limited natural gas infrastructure are contributing factors to reliability risk. Now, Rory Sweeney covered the assessment for cleaning up and Robert Walton covered it for utility dive. Um, so just wow. Just wow. <laughs> so uh, what are your thoughts, Leah? What are your takeaways? From- yeah, I think same. Wow. Um, yeah. And in looking at those numbers, it's really, it's pretty staggering. Um, you know, I think if I was, if I was in Texas and, you know, after, the winter storm year last year and just kind of seeing, you know, where we are today, it, I think it begs the question of, you know, how, how are we not in a better position this year than we were last year? And I think it was really kind of fascinating the way the article went through and kind of described, you know, what different steps, different RTOs and ISOs have been doing, you know, SVP, lower risk due to added generation, natural gas and wind since last winter. And so in, in the case of Texas, I mean, they do go through and talk about um, some of the work that they have done since last year. I think, you know, they they talk about enacting some rules to improve generator reliability in cold weather and keeping infrastructure operating in frigid conditions and things like this. Um, But to still sort of be in this really bad position going into the winter, you know, I think it kind of points to what else needs to be done. I mean, it feels like more and, and quicker is is clearly um, probably where they need to be driving toward. But but what is the answer there, and what can they be doing beyond what they're doing? I think that's that's the key question. And you know, I think one of the places it's easy to go to is you know their their position is really challenged because they can't get transfers outside of their region as easily in the case of energy emergencies. So I think. You know, if it were me, I'd be thinking about ways to 
increase reliability through every lens possible, including um, trying to enhance coordination. Um, but I think that would obviously be, be a huge policy call, not something that's going to happen in the near term. Um, but yeah, I think pretty, pretty sobering to see numbers like that. That that was what I was going to follow up and ask is like, it, would another um, major event into outage event in Texas or, or would consecutive winter events um, make it more likely that ERCOT would choose to do interstate transfers and and subject itself to for just just say you know what for the sake of reliability we will we will just we're going to do this do you think that's even possible yeah uh you know I, I don't know kind of politically what the reality is for something like that but um like i said i think if if it were me i'd be thinking you know just given the real repercussions of um, you know, loss of life and the just really tragic outcomes from winter storm area. I mean, you've got to be thinking beyond what you're already doing and maybe there are other solutions. Um, but I think enhanced coordination, I think keeping with our theme, you know, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. So I think there's other, you know, there's obviously questions about, um, you know, do you keep resources online longer that were slated to close? I think that's something folks are thinking through. But I think, again, that's a bit of a, a sort of a Band-Aid fix. It's a short-term fix. It's not a long-term solution. Um, so I think they need to be thinking about, you know, what else might they be doing? Because it's whatever it is, it's it's not clearly enough, given the numbers that we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, I, they, they seem to be like the closest at least, or maybe the exception to the idea of your comment earlier about no balancing authority as an island. Um, but ERCOT's really trying to, to island itself, uh, like despite all the things that have happened. Um, I, uh, that wasn't a question, just a comment. That was, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was on a panel uh, at PNUC's annual meeting with Elaine Hart, and Elaine made us promise uh, not to uh, use the just, uh, one more reliability event framework to f use scare tactics into making progress. So I'm going to avoid that one. I will say, um, from my readings of publications and stuff, it actually feels like the Northeast is the scarier market to be in this winter because of uh, its susceptibility to Europeans' uh, natural gas markets because they have LNG export terminals there. The natural gas supplies in the Northeast are below their historic uh, storage. And, um, and in this reliability assessment, you know, part of um, part the, the or Texas isn't the only one with negative planning reserve margin indicators. We also have some uh, in MISO in, in the Northeast. So uh, Almaz is a planner, um, which is your area of expertise. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you think about um, when, when you see these planning reserve margins go negative in some forecast period that's nearer than what you normally plan for? Uh, or, or any takeaways on how we do planning in the future to make sure that we don't end up with near-term shortfalls? Um, I, I, so I don't know what they're doing over there. I would imagine um, not relying so much on the market when everybody's relying on the market. Uh, you can get yourself in a, a little bit of a situation. Um, I, 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 I just... When, when we do our, our long-term planning at Tacoma, uh, sometimes, you know, when we're doing our many, many simulations, and we might have a couple of the near the near term years that that'll show an adequacy issue. Um, we or, or not not so much the near, let's just say 
between five to 10 years out, like not, not next That's year. That's near, like, that's near in planning terms. Well, yeah, cause it's not the 20 year. We're not talking about yeah. towards the end of the 20 year period, but that five to 10 year mark, um, we don't actually get nervous. Um, it's like, depending on how, how significant it is. Like if it, if we saw something that was negative 20%, yeah, we'd be, we'd be shaking in our boots. Uh, but for something like, uh, if it's like a really, really small uh, event, um, what Tacoma has has the route that Tacoma has gone is the, that usually only happens in like a really extreme simulation when we're looking at extreme weather and like all all the stars align in the worst possible way that we then we'll see this this adequacy issue and we, we start looking at things like demand response or like small things that we can dial in and dial out because we're trying to avoid um, planning for the worst possible situation that yeah. uh, isn't the, the the most likely so. Um, yeah, I, I think yeah, that's what that's, happens when, when when you don't put, yeah, it can happen. That's a great pitch for the Western Resource Adequacy Program because it's trying to make a programmatic approach to uh, to making sure those edge cases, you have a big enough footprint to manage those. And you have a common metric across that big footprint. So those reliability events and edge cases um, have some more mechanisms uh, to call on. So it circled it all the way back around. You know, it all comes back. <laughs> back to the rep. I, you know, and that's why uh, not to use fear tactics because well, I we made a pledge not to. Point. Yes. Um, gosh, so I'm not even going to finish the sentence. Yeah, no. yep, like we made a pledge. We made a pledge. <laughs> We're not wishing for extreme events anymore. We're going to use in, enthusiasm. In terms of circling back, um, the as was one thing I, I meant to uh, ask. This is actually a question for Paul. Um, ask earlier the the gentleman who attended the meeting, the the member of the general public that Almaz you mentioned earlier. Can we make that person an honorary friend of the underground? I feel like they've earned it. If they're a member yeah. of the general public going to that meeting, they deserve honorary. You know what? I I too was wondering. Wow, kudos to him. First of all, just knowing <laughs> the comp comment on something as complex as the rap. So absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I, I don't have a sticker, but if they want to order a t-shirt, they can become a friend of the underground anytime. Yeah. I, I think that's all we have uh, on Public Power Desktop. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and close out or we're going to come back and do a TLDR segment called Short to Ground. Public Power Underground is brought to you by NWPPA. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in the power of training and education. Every year, more than 6,500 public power employees learn and network at our classes, webinars, workshops, and conferences. NWPPA offers more than 200 event, 250 events, wowzer, to choose from in areas such as leadership, engineering, operations, accounting, and finance, communications, and many more. Sometimes this very podcast, Public Power Underground, is broadcast live from one of our events. We call that being more powerful together. What will you learn this year? Find an event that's right for you at nwppa.org forward slash catalog. That's nwppa.org forward slash catalog. This is Short to Ground, a segment where we blow a fuse covering the news. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Leah Fisher. And, and we're shorting the ground. In a unanimous November 17th decision, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission gave its final approval to remove four dams on the lower Klamath River and begin the process of restoring the river for fish, tribes, and others who have pushed for years for a free-flowing waterway. 
The final order comes 12 years after Pacific Corps first entered into an agreement to surrender the dams for removal. Casey Mahaffey covered the news and clearing up. California Energy Markets' Jason Fordney covered the Joint Federal-State Task Force on Electric Transmission mission held in conjunction with the annual meeting of, Nas- of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners in New Orleans on November 15th in his bottom line articles this week. FERC's independent transmission monitor proposal was a topic of discussion during the meeting. FERC Chair Richard Glick was in attendance and noted that the concept received support at its October technical conference on transmission planning and cost allocation. You can check out a recording of the technical conference on YouTube at your leisure. I'll include a link in the show notes. The 290-mile, 500-kV line from Boardman, Oregon to Idaho Power's Hemingway substation called B2H is under review by the Oregon Public Utility Commission, OPOC, review. The project has been approved by the Oregon Energy Facility Siting Council, FSEC. The Oregon Public Utility Commission is accepting public comment through January 10th, 2023, and commissioners are expected to decide on Idaho Power's petition in the summer of 2023. You can find coverage in Clearing Up by Greg Mason. For friends of the underground who are fascinated by the water power nexus, a new study released by researchers from Arizona State University identifies and provides detailed information about the source, amount, and ownership of water rights used by coal-fired power plants and coal mines in the Colorado River Basin. The researchers said that the 37 coal-fired power plants and coal mines in the basin have more than 800 industrial water rights, which entitle facility owners to as much as 1.8 million acre-feet of water annually. Linda Daly-Paulson covered the topic for California Energy Markets in the November 18th edition. EPA officially kicked off its power and transmission rate cases by publishing its power rate case, BP24, in the Federal Register on November 18th, and the transmission case, TC24, in the Federal Register on December 2nd. The rate cases are the subject of a settlement BPA reached with customers that would return nearly $350 million to hold average power and transmission rates flat. If approved by FERC, BPA's new rates would be effective October 1st, 2023, through September 30th, 2025. For more coverage, check out Steve Ernst's article in Clearing Up. The Diablo Canyon power plant, California's last operating nuclear generating station, can receive up to $1.1 billion in civil nuclear credits under the 2021 infrastructure law, the Department of Energy conditionally determined November 21st. DOE said the conditional award creates a path for keeping the 2,240-megawatt plant open beyond Pacific Gas and Electric's earlier plan to decommission units 1 and 2 in 2024 and 2022. Five, respectively. PG&E's, uh, PG&E filed for the credits on September 2nd, the same day California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law Senate Bill 846, which opened the door to extending the plant's life by five years. Read more coverage by Jim DePesso in the Potomac section of California Energy Markets and Clearing Up. The early September heat wave that hit the West sent wholesale power prices across the region skyrocketing, and market participants and others are now arguing before federal federal regulators over whether the prices were justified. About a dozen power sellers submitted justification filings to FERC, asking for clearance for sales made during the heat wave above $1,000 megawatt per $1,000 per megawatt hour Western Electricity Coordinating Council soft price cap. They argue that energy scarcity and robust market conditions during the event justify the prices. For more on the filings, check out Jason Fordney's coverage in California energy markets. 
Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today, November 28th, is at $85 per megawatt hour with Northwest gas at $11.63 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $3.62 and a heat rate of 7300 Spot power in the Southwest is at $50.50 per megawatt hour, Southern California at $99.72 and Northern California at $112.03. The U.S. Energy Information Administration released their November short-term energy outlook where they are forecasting natural gas spot prices at the U.S. benchmark Henry Hub will average $6.09 per million British thermal units this winter, the highest real price since winter 2009-2010. Despite lower Henry Hub spot prices since late August, we expect natural gas prices to rise this winter because of seasonal demand for natural gas for space heating, which typically peaks in January and February. We expect prices to also increase as a result of higher LNG exports as the Northern Hemisphere enters winter in the Freeport LNG terminal, which paused operations in June following a fire, resumes partial operations before the end of the year. This week in NOAA climate forecast, the 6-10 to 10 day outlook has below normal temperatures across the northwest with leaning toward above average precipitation for the northwest and likely above precipitation for central California. A new 30-day outlook was issued on November 17th with equal chance above and below average temperatures for much of the West and a leaning toward above above average precipitation for the Northwest. The exception being a likely above average temperature for the desert Southwest. Uh, the Northern part of the West also leans wet and cold in the November 17th issuance of the 90 day outlook where the Southern part of the U.S. leans warm and dry. Lastly, checking Northwest water supply forecasts. October through September flows at the Dells for water year 2023 are currently forecasted to be 80% of normal and April to September is at 85%. Day ending elevation at Grand Coulee for November 28th was 1,280 feet. That's it for our TLDR segment. Thanks to Public Power Underground's production partners at News Data for letting us use their leads. If you want to know more, you can find the complete stories in California energy markets and clearing up. Let's close out the episode, Leo. Ready? That's short to ground. Perfect. No notes. Any uh, any commentary you have there, Almaz? What do you, any stories there you want to talk more about? Yeah, no, those were some some interesting stories. There was one that uh, the the prices that went above a thousand dollars per megawatt hour. Um, yes. Yep, it's a soft it's a soft cap. Anything there, Dan? You wanted to talk more about any stories we covered? Uh, no, I, I don't have anything to add. Leah, anything else? We, we are, none of the none yeah. of them were interesting enough to talk about. Well, you know, let's go. Let's go to something non-controversial, right? Dam removal. Oh. <laughs> no, I just thought that one. So, in reading through that article, um, kind of some interesting facts that I just wasn't aware of. So, I read that. In the U.S., 1,951 dams have been demolished. Um, this was, I think, as of February last year. And then there were 57 total in 2021. Um, so that was just, I think, I had not gotten any sort of perspective or had any perspective on, you know, how much dam removal has occurred, you know, since the beginning of time and then also more recently in 2021. So just really interesting to see those numbers. And obviously, as the largest dam removal um, in the world, this is this is big news, and um, obviously going to be very impactful to fish tribes and many others in the region. So, I'm sure it's going to be um, an important case study on on dam removal and how that impacts river and salmon populations. So, I think that's that's certainly big news there. So, I just wanted to pause on that one for a minute. 
Absolutely, big news. Um, the 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 weather forecast. You know, having nothing else to talk about, let's talk about the weather. Uh, the six to ten day having below average temperatures. Uh, also, the in the northwest, the possibility of I don't know an Arctic blast coming in the next couple day, days and the, the end of this week. Um, I've read that. Uh, Seattle may see temperatures in the single digits. Um, by the time likely that this is published, like Thursday, Friday, you may have single digits up there, Dan. Uh, any comments? Are you ready for cold weather and possibly snow? Uh, as ready as we'll ever be. I'm so certainly, no. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I should say, I having grown up in New England and, and taken my driving driver's license test, like with a sh- thick sheet of ice on the road i'm ready oh my You're god the city collectively <laughs> not so much yeah. uh yeah so are you ready my kids school I am, I am never ready for snow when i so i don't have a, a big old four-wheel drive anymore and so i stay my little self home when it snows <laughs> Now, are you all from the like the Seattle? Leah, are you up there too? Oh my! Uh, how yeah, are you I'm ready? Seattle. You ready for oh, snow? Gosh. I went I to the store know today to try to find you know those little kid cotton gloves that they always get lost, and somehow yes. we have zero of those pairs um, right now. So no, we're not prepared. We have no gloves for my daughter. <laughs> do you do you have one of those plastic sleds at least? Yes, it might be okay. like halfway broken, but we do have one sitting by the side of the house. It's all that matters. <laughs> Um, yep. Thanks. I think that'll close you can out the TL- a, a sled. It's there's plenty of things. Yeah, there's plenty of cardboard. You can always just make there you uh, go. a sled out of cardboard. Garbage can tops. Those work too. Yep. Um, that's it for the TLDR segment. Before we close it out, I wanted to share some personal news. Uh, I accepted a position at Seattle City Light, working for Siobhan Doherty in the Power Management Group. This will be my last recording as a as the manager of the power department for Klatsk and IPUD. Um, as y'all may have noticed, the folks at Klatsk and IPUD are are in fact amazing. Uh, early friends of the underground witnessed the fun and collaborative work environment we have here. Aaron, Ian, Brian, and I came up with this whole idea and format uh, because we sincerely enjoyed working with each other. Uh, when our team started working remote, we wanted to stay connected and keep the morale up as a department and and wanted to keep our connection to the public power community. Um, I don't know that this show could have come from anywhere else. I think it was a unique uh, moment and place in time. And a lot of that thanks goes to Klatsk and I PUD. My affection for Klatsk and I PUD goes beyond the podcast though. Uh, Getting hired by Eric Hyacin to be a power analyst for Klatsk and I PUD was my introduction to Northwest, the, the Northwest power community. And for those of you who know Eric, you know what a great introduction that is. He's a truly brilliant and caring and kind person. Um, those who I've interacted with recently probably have heard me say this story, but I sincerely believe that uh, my wife and I would have stopped after our first child and not had our second or third child if it were not for the Northwest Public Power community. Our, our first child was just a terrible sleeper. Um, he only slept in fits and chunks. Um, 
really for the first two years of his life. And, and the chunks were only when we were holding him and walking him around. And at that time, I was working as a project developer for Next Air Energy, and I had frequent trips. I had to travel to places like Nebraska and Ohio and Idaho and see customers and landowners and uh, do permitting at county uh, permitting commissions. Um, and during those trips, I would call home and I would ask my wife how things were going. And she would honestly say that she hadn't slept since I left. Um, and it was during one of those return trips home from Steel Flats Wind Project in Beatrice, Nebraska, that I found uh, advertisement for the power analyst position uh, for, at Klatskin IPUD on NWPPA's website. Uh, and after spending months uh, hunting for jobs from Skamania County PUD to Tacoma, um, I got the chance to to apply for this one. And I can still walk around, remember walking around. I don't know if you, uh, those have small kids, the bounce when you're a dad, the dad bounce. Uh, I was doing the dad bounce in the kitchen when I was, and I was checking emails to see if uh, any anybody had responded to applications and stuff. Uh, Eric gave me a shot uh, and we moved across the country. I have gotten to grow professionally and personally while here. We've welcomed Cecilia and Kel into our home. I will forever be grateful to Eric, to Mark, to Sarah, and the folks at Klatsk and I for letting me be myself. Um, and if you like this podcast, you owe Mark and Sarah and the board gratitude for letting Aaron, Ian, Brian, and I have the space to make this unique and infotaining kind of program. I will always be grateful to Aaron, Ian, Brian, Luigi, Neil, and Brandy for being part of the team here at Klatsk and I PUD. Um, that said, uh, this podcast may keep going. Now, I've told people when I met with them over the past weeks when this news was going about that you should always be grateful because every episode may be the last. So be grateful for this. Uh, but we do expect that it could at least keep going for a bit longer. And we can talk about that more in the next episode. But I will forever be grateful to Klatsky and I Beauty. Uh, it, is, uh, it will always be have a special place in my heart. So that's all the news we're covering this week. Wonderful job being a celebrity guest star, Leah. I, I hope you feel valued and appreciated. I felt very valued and appreciated. And that was a lovely tribute, Paul. And I have been just a super fan of the Public Power Underground since it got going and just really appreciate the efforts of you and the Klotzkanai team and all the time and effort you've dedicated to, to make this a place and space for folks like us. So thank you. Yes. Amaz, do you feel valued and appreciated? I do. And I value and appreciate you, Paul. Thanks so much. I appreciate that. Dan, Dan, you know, you know, I appreciate you, right? I do. Uh, and I hope you know that I appreciate you and also what you and the team at Klatskanai PUD created in this, uh, in the public power underground. And um, as far as I know, unless things have changed, uh, news data plans to help keep this going at least for a little while. Um, at least for a little while longer. Yeah. I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't, I'm not the publisher, so I can't speak for long term, but it's on my calendar. There you go. Through the rest of the season. So, yeah, I uh, can. Uh, the, the, the moment, the really reckoning moment for Public Power Underground is when I walk down to Mark's office and be like, hey, what do you think about us like putting this on YouTube? And, and he was supportive. And then I asked Sarah, our director of communications, like, is it okay? Is there anything here? And she was like, yeah, go ahead. Seems fun. And then we just did it. And, uh, and that really is a cultural thing. There's a lot of trust uh, and grateful for that. So with that, 
uh, we'll close it out. Public Power Underground is the power industry's premier infotainment program that covers electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. You can sign up for an unobtrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Thanks to News Data and our News Data podcast ambassador, Dan Ketchpole. You can find Dan at Clearing Up, where he is a reporter and associate editor. You don't have to be subscribed to News Data's weekly newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. Power's the subject of public power news. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll Public Power Underground is a production of Klatsky and IPUD and News Data. The views expressed are her own and not the official views of Klatsky and IPUD and News Data or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written by Paul Dockery, Dan Ketchpole, and Abigail Sawyer, and it's edited and published by the Stellar team at Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in.